The following show is being broadcasted from an undisclosed location. Two former special operators have combined their badassery and now sharing it with the world. They ain't alive no more. All with a beer and a smile. This is the Savage Actual Podcast. And now your hosts combat vets with 20 plus deployments between the two of them and enough testosterone to operate the power grid of Los Angeles. Savage Actual. Now your hosts, Jason and Patrick. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Savage Actual podcast. My name is Patrick Maltrup. I'm a former Navy SWIC, former Marine, and I'm here with my uh, partner in crime, What's up, everybody? Jason Lilly here. I'm a prior Marine myself. Uh, finished my career as a Marine Raider and uh, did a bunch of cool things after that for the government overseas. And uh, here I am doing this with uh, with Patrick. We got a really special guest today, uh, a legend from uh, from wars previous to, to ours in a very similar situation. Uh, we got John Stryker Meyer, prior Green Beret, uh, Max Sog V guy, legend. The legend is here with us. How you doing, John? Good. TGIF to the max, man. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We absolutely. are we are recording this on a Friday, so it's it's good to sit down with you, John. We've been wanting to talk to you for a while. Um, I, we actually I remember we all chatted a while back when we were kind of talking about that the Mac V video game. And uh, right. yes, sir. That's right. Yeah. It's finally good to are you still working on that at all i'm a c- consultant with it because um um it's a great game but i know that if i start playing it i'm going to spend a lot of time playing that game <laughs> i got too much going on uh, we're doing the podcast and and our family we got grandkids now and uh before you know it, it's sunday night you know yeah. yeah you don't you definitely don't want to get sucked into that i it was i'll tell you what it was it was very impressive watching those guys work on that game and then talk it hearing you talk about it saying how it literally looked exactly the same when you would walk into the into the you know the outpost and you look to the left and it was the same building that used to be there and the same building to the right and I, it i was very impressed with the work that those guys did paired up with you to uh make that game happen it was it was pretty incredible actually oh yeah the the the, the details in it you got to hand it to. I don't know how they did it, quite frankly. And uh, they put a lot of time and effort. He had it. And Rob Graham is the uh, OIC on that. Yep. And they put a lot of time in with that. And uh, their attention to detail, and they really care about the history. You know, they um, are very careful about it. So I got to give them credit. Yeah, well, they they definitely look up and honor you guys. So that's 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 definitely that motive to do it the right way was was definitely an honor of the trials and tribulations you guys went through. So um, yeah, Rob was a good guy. We were, we were pretty pleased working with him as well. He's such a nice guy. So. Um, oh, absolutely. And then in a spare time, they put together that presentation uh, when they were going for the uh, medal of honor application for um, Colonel Paris Davis. Yeah. I saw that. They worked on that and put together a, a video that was submitted as part of the official submission, which was very helpful in helping uh, Colonel Davis rightfully get his Medal of Honor, which was awarded last month. Yeah. Oh, wow. it's, did you see the uh, any of the news on that after the fact, after he had, 
you know, he after the ceremony he had re- received his Medal of Honor that evening, I was watching some of the new and I actually saw it during the ceremony. I watched it. But then afterwards, when the news was talking about it, they had clips from the video game that those guys had created. And instantly I recognized it from <laughs> from that work. I was like, that's from the game. That's from the Mac V saw game. I was like, that's pretty incredible that I, it was uh, interesting to see that. You know, yeah. I didn't see that. I was uh, I was flying from uh, flying back from North Carolina and getting hung up at the airport, so I yeah. missed it. So but that yeah. was an outstanding day for our listeners out there that are in the dark. Uh, what game we're talking about? It's the the main game is uh, Arma Three, and it's a download DLC content called Sog Prairie Fire. And Rob Graham, he's uh he's in the UK and his team's kind of spread out all over the world. They had a American Army soldier, I forgot his name, with a really deep voice, really nice guy who did a lot of the uh, the voice acting. But this came out probably was it a year ago? Year and some yeah, change right, ago? right around a year ago. Oh yeah, <clears throat> yeah. But one heck of one heck of a time. I, I got to actually play with John and some of the other members of of his team. Uh, I believe a helicopter mechanic or pilot uh, was there with us i forgot his name yeah don haas that's it that's it don um but we all got together and played uh you know operator drewski and uh rob got on the, the things so it was pretty cool to virtually go back in time and uh and do some of the jungle fighting with you man yeah a little different warfare than what you gentlemen did yeah different but similar in ways i'm sure Oh, a lot of yeah, the similarities between, regardless of the war, it's it's amazing. Yeah, getting hunted by another man, uh, you know, it doesn't doesn't change a whole lot over time. From rocks to stones to sticks, you know, it's all the same threat. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But, yeah, well, John. You know, I'll tell you what. It's uh, uh, we. I'd like to let's get into the meat and potatoes of this a little bit. I you sure. kind of had mentioned it before you know it like kind of capture like you were we were talking earlier about like your podcast which specifically what what is the name of that again it's uh called sog s-o-g cast one word and um it's we do it uh courtesy of jocko willing productions okay and um you know i've done eight interviews with jocko on his jocko podcast yep and uh at the end of the eighth one we came together for an agreement to uh, produce SOGcast, where I interview SOG veterans. Nice. And uh, to date, uh, April 2023, we got 41 interviews in the can. And then Jocko's uh, staff, in between all the other work that they do, uh, they post the audio first on Spotify and Apple. Gotcha. And then the YouTubes are up. So we have 32 Number 32 Sawcast was posted a few days ago on Spotify for the audio. And number 18 was recently posted on YouTube. That's awesome. So Sawcast, if you just punch in Sawcast number one, which has had over 200,000 views now. Wow. And then uh, one through 18, different Saw guys. We have an aviators in there, um, a historian, and the guys that are on the ground. That's awesome. That's awesome. So yeah, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know who John is, definitely go to Sogcast, give him a follow and listen to it. The the history that 
John has been involved in and, and all of his guys, it's absolutely incredible. And, you know, that's one of the reasons why I really wanted to make sure that we got a chance to talk to you. I mean, you, you're, you've written so many books and you've done, I, I, honestly, an amazing job capturing all the history that you guys have, uh, have gone through. And of course, you know, Billy Waugh just passed away this past right. week and, and uh, I'm sure that you've had, I'm sure how many, how many times were you able to to sit down with him? Were you able to sit down with Billy at all? Well, I first met Billy at CCN 1970 uh, <laughs> and he came by there and that's when they were, he was first talking about the idea of jumping into uh, Laos or Cambodia. And uh, quite frankly, that made me nervous. <laughs> <laughs> well, he did, he did the first <laughs> halo jump, right? In 71. Uh, he he did a halo jump, but it wasn't the first. The first one was with Mel Hill, was the one zero, the team leader. Gotcha. And then Cliff Newman and Sammy Hernandez, who's another one of our SOG legends. And they went in and um, they jumped, I think it was around November or December of uh, 70. And when they went in, they had a, a homing device so that the theory was when they got on the ground, they could turn the homing devices in and find each other. Ah. Trouble was they did a halo jump from 14 or 16,000 feet in wow. the rain. Oh, so by the time they got to the ground, the homing device didn't work. It was not <laughs> waterproof. Wasn't, wasn't, wasn't military standard back then too much. Just, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's crazy. Well, you so, always hear, you know, uh, Murphy's law. Oh yeah. You're not a mission. Things would go wrong. And in this case, it was like a major wrong. Wow. So they survived it. it and they got the team was on the ground. Covey came out and worked with them over a couple of days and finally got them all out. What, what, why was Billy such a proponent of, of, you know, jumping into those areas just because it was quieter, not wanting to do go in with a helo and give yourself away, that type of thing. Right. And, yeah. and, you know, we're always, um, particularly in Laos, because uh, I arrived at SOG <clears throat> FOB1 in May of 68. And by that time, it was hard to get uh, LZs to go in. And of course, you know, the local the local people were forced to report any activity to the NVA. Uh, and in 68, they had over a battalion that was just in Laos alone. Their sole job was to find SOG recon teams kill the Americans, but keep the indigenous troops alive for PSYOPs. And then by 71, uh, they had over two two battalions of people, and they were sappers, highly trained, and they would go in, if they would locate where the teams were, they would just go into the, into the perimeter and kill the Americans and pull out. And they had several cases where they did that successfully. Wow, that's crazy. So that's why Billy, in answer to your question, the idea was to go in, like you said, silent. But the, the challenge, as you know, is to get on the ground and be able to regroup and yeah. to do halo in the rain and their homing devices didn't work. They had their, their challenges, but they were able to do it. They had five halo jumps, combat jumps into Laos. Wow. And, and SOG also had 12 static line jumps uh, somewhere across the fence. And some were in country, they were supporting aid camps that were under heavy sieges at the time. That's wow. that's super impressive. I mean, yeah, that's crazy. Oh, yeah. It's just it's another dimension of SOG. I just know about from talking to the guys. And I know that uh 
thinking about jumping into Laos from 16,000 feet and being able to regather your team. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Lynn Black, my, my counterpart, we had talked about it, but if we were going to do it, we'd want to do it at 600 feet. No reserve. Gotcha, go out yeah. and quickly yeah. land. Yep. And again, just trying to find a, a drop zone that you could assemble two to four guys because it couldn't be a big team. You know, you have to have it small. Yeah. We talked about it. <clears throat> and then my time in SOG ended in April of 1970. After two tours, I came back. The reduction of forces were coming. So I just left the army altogether and went back to college because I flunked out, had to make up a lot of grades. <laughs> So can we, can John, can we go back to back a little bit to sure. maybe your teenager time? Can we talk about a little bit kind of where you grew up and what yeah. sort of directed yeah, I grew you? Grew up in Trenton, New Jersey. And- uh, Dad was a milkman. Mom was a uh, choir director, piano teacher, and um, went through public schools. And then in '64, uh, graduated, went to college for two years, flunked out, read the book The Green Berets. <laughs> and they were, and at the time they were doing a draft, and I said, okay, if I go, I'm a city slicker, so I knew I needed more training than eight weeks of basic and eight weeks of AIT. Because at that time, yeah, the people who were drafted eight and eight, a month R and R, and then you're in Vietnam. Wow, wow. quick turnaround. And, uh, that's the way that worked for the conventional, and even for, and guys were getting drafted into the Marine Corps. Right, and um, so I knew I needed more training. So I read the book, enlisted, went through the training at AIT, Advanced Infantry Training. Um, the SF recruiters come by. We did all the written tests, psyops, physical. And um, the recruiter told me, says, Meyer, you're lucky. We lowered the standards. <laughs> <laughs> so You just squeaked in, huh? Yeah. So I squeaked in under the wire and then uh, – so I enlisted, went in in uh, December of 66. 67 was just going through basic AIT, jump school, special forces training. And then we had 12 weeks TDY with their radio teletype because they wanted SF for top secret transmissions. We all had our top secret clearance by then. This podcast episode is sponsored by Iron Fire Brewing. Iron Fire Brewing is a Southern California favorite creating craft beers from the finest ingredients. Find them on Instagram at Iron Fire Brewing, or better yet, swing by their brewery on Zevo Drive in Temecula, California. Iron Fire Brewing, all killer, no filler. Arrived in Vietnam, April 68, did in-country training. At the end, we're looking for volunteers. And Johnny McIntyre, my buddy, goes, for what? And the Sergeant Major goes, can't say, either you're in or you're not. And so we all volunteered, of course. We had the movie Green Berets was out in 1968. <laughs> so we Just all did it. We volunteered. Next day, we're up in Denang, got the briefing, signed the NDAs, and then we had the top secret briefing. Welcome to the Secret War. And they wow. had the map of Vietnam with all the cities and stuff. But then in Laos and Cambodia, there were target boxes. And they explained, um, what the missions were, and then how there had been a lot of a lot of lost teams, and this is '68. '68 was the worst year for casualties for SOG, as well as the Vietnam War itself, and because of Tet. 
Yeah. And uh, I arrived at FOB1 in May of 68. By that time, we had several teams wiped out. We had one team where everybody was killed except the team leader. He E&E'd for three days and was able to come out. And then I got my job uh, running recon. Uh, when I came into Fubai, we got off the South Vietnamese Air Force helicopter, which are called codenamed King Bees. Yep. Dirty old Sikorsky's flown by the South Vietnamese. And a recon team, Spike Team Idaho, with two Americans, Glenn Lane and Robert Owen, and four indigenous troops, flew into a target, never heard from again. So to this day, uh, April of 2023, uh, Glenn Lane and Robert Owen are 50 Green Berets that are still MIA from the secret war in Laos and Cambodia. To have their remains they have, do they have, I mean, obviously, so you have the POW MIA flag behind you. And I actually, oh, yeah. my, my last duty station in, in, uh, the Navy was a SEER instructor. And so we, you know, they're huge proponents of all this stuff. And I've, I've read a lot of the actually classified briefs on some of this stuff. And I know that they're still <clears> looking for those guys. Are, are there any active, um programs for them to go into Laos or Cambodia to look for for these guys at all well there's the department is the under DOD it's the department of POW MIA accounting agency yep and uh during COVID they shut down all their operations and quite frankly uh they don't do enough for Vietnam era vets in that area right now it's very they're doing more emphasis on World War II in Korea because they can get bigger numbers. So it's a bureaucracy. Oh, uh, and I'm biased. We don't do enough for um, for the secret war particularly. And, it's, you know, they have to deal with all the governments, the politics. The teams they send in are amazing. They're dedicated. The, the, the people that are on those teams, once they're on the ground in Laos or Cambodia, they're dedicated to the core. But... It's the mid-management that makes the decisions as to who's going to go when and where. Yeah. That's where we have our issue. And quite frankly, I like to go down and bitch smack some of those folks. <laughs> you know, because like I said, 50 Green Berets, and we've documented at least 83 aviators that died oh. supporting SOG recon teams. Yeah. Because we had the highest casualty rate of the work. We didn't learn that till years later. And that's all, primarily in, that's all primarily in Laos? Laos and Cambodia. We lost yeah. good people down there, too. Um, and and a few up in North Vietnam going in for um, down pilots. Yeah. Things like that. So we had, and the aviators included Marine Corps. We had Scarface, uh, other Marine units attached to us. Yeah. And, of course, Air Force and then the Army. Wow. Yeah. That's incredible. So what... Where was the where was the base located that you primarily worked out of while you well, were in '68? They had six FOBs, and I was at FOB one, which is Fubai, and Vietnam was divided into four corps. So I Corps was north, right by the DMZ. Gotcha. Then two corps, Kantum, and then three corps was Saigon, and four was the Mekong Delta, further south. And all of our missions were up north into Laos or North Vietnam. So Fubai, uh, FOB one. What was the distance from that position in Vietnam to the border of Cambodia? How long of a flight? What's the distance to that? Well, from uh, for I Corps, everything was Laos and Cambodia and the Laotian border were further south 
Mm-hmm. They had that's what they called the tri-border areas. You had Cambodia, uh, Laos, and Vietnam with the Ho Chi Minh Trail. Right. And the Ho Chi Minh Trail came from the north and had different trails that came in into I Corps, Two Corps, which included that tri-border area where they ran missions out of FOB2 and um, Contum. And they had just nasty targets there. Yeah. Yeah. So this is pr- this is a pressing question that I have. It's it's kind of jumping out of this realm to present day. Sure. But be- being a warfighter yourself, and I only ask this question because I'm in the same position now, and I know Patrick is too, that we're we're older guys now. And Patrick and I are 43, but my time in Iraq and Afghanistan, our war is over. So we're like we're the new old. We're the new old. We're the new <laughs> Vietnam vets. Yeah. You know, it's it's a weird position to be in because you think you're going to be in that age forever, and all of a sudden you're forty something, you need glasses. You know, it's like it's a really weird state to be in. So, <laughs> specifically for you, John, yeah, being the age you are now, how was that? You know, being an older man, watching this younger generation, my generation, go through kind of the same type of bullshit with war and po- politics <laughs> and bureaucracies. How was that for you? Just being older now, watching this new war kick off, you know, what did, did things come up for you? Like, how was that for you? Well, I could, t- when, when, um, when they hit the uh, twin towers, yeah. My, the only Vietnamese from my team that made it to the United States was my interpreter, a uh, Nguyen Kong Hap. Hmm. And he was living in Houston at the time. And the day they hit those towers, Hep called me up. And he could never say my last name, Meyer, because they had a hard time with R's. Yeah. He called me and said, My. He says, <laughs> those sons of bitches, they hit us. We call King Bees. We go Vietnam, we get Sal. He was our team leader. He says, we go get these motherfuckers that came to our country. And that's the way I felt. We wanted to go to battle right then. I wanted yeah. to get my car 15 out, get Thumper. Yeah. And to go find those folks. And then, uh, like you said, I was a little bit, little bit older than 40 at the time and uh we knew we couldn't go but sure wanted to yeah i i'm actually surprised that somebody in the i mean we have uh, of course it's been a long time and we have a a lot of extremely skilled people in the u.s military but i'm surprised that somebody didn't reach out to you as some sort of advisor i know billy billy wall worked in that sort of in that yeah billy was 70 years old he was running around the mountains of afghanistan (laughs) He was the money man. He was the bag man for the CIA. That yeah. guy was a machine. He was a freaking, I mean, Lord, I I don't think, did he ever stop? Did he ever, did he ever say, Hey, I'm going to retire and take a break. It doesn't seem like oh, he it. never, those words never crossed his lip. He just slowed down a little bit the last couple of years, like when he's 91, <laughs> <laughs> Wow. but his heart and his spirit was always, uh, let's yeah. go get him. Yep. And uh, yeah, he was amazing that way, but he was there. And in my case, um, when that happened, we still had uh, we still had four kids at home, and I was working at a job. And uh, by 2008, I I was terminated from a job at a newspaper, and I had phone calls right away. Can you come here? We had a, one job would have been in Afghanistan. I'm not sure what the other one was. I I wasn't sure, but I went to my command sergeant major and said, "Look." We can make $180,000, $200,000 this <laughs> next year. Yeah. We can pay off the bills. We can get a new car. We can get this and that. She goes, no. <laughs> she says, uh, I'm familiar with your story. 
I read what you survived in Vietnam, and we still have. And at that time, my uh, 2008, my youngest girl was, uh, she was in uh, junior high school, and my wife goes, "Ixnay, go find something else to do." So we did. I worked in uh, <laughs> a nonprofit housing, helping veterans get affordable housing for 12 years. After that. Oh, not not awesome. quite as in, not quite as intense as carrying a, a a weapon onto the battlefield, right? No, and you know, and deep down inside, I really wanted to go. Yeah, but uh, oh. you know how that goes when a sergeant major speaks. Yeah, we no had, doubt. We had uh, over at Marsoc at my my platoon in my unit. We uh, in Afghanistan for every diplomat, Afghani diplomat, they had shadow positions that the Taliban mirrored that. So there was always a shadow governor, a shadow element that was Taliban to Afghani government officials. So our running joke was our uh, our missus was the shadow governor. So I gotta I gotta run it through the shadow governor to see if I can do this. So Command Sergeant Major, the set the you Ooh. know, it's it's the same title. So <laughs> oh yeah. For sure. You know, speaking of Marsoc, I was just down there at headquarters a couple months ago. Oh, down there for some training. And, and uh, boy, that, you talk about state-of-the-art and what those guys are doing down there. Yeah, Stone Bay. It's, pretty, it's a pretty cool facility. Sadly, they disbanded my unit. Well, I would say disbanded, but they, they relocated 1st Raider Battalion to the East Coast over at the flagpole, which honestly I do disagree with because Camp Pendleton, its terrain is, is quite beautiful. And I don't really agree with putting – all of Marsoc in one spot. That's an easy, it's an easy picking if you if you do it right. So well, yes. yeah, and they put and they put Marsoc on the other side of the river, not in, not on base. Right. Which is a good thing, which is a good thing. You know, yeah. separate separate that umbilical a little bit from Indeed. the high from the high and tight types. Well, you know, uh, my uh, I had a uh, profound um experience with for, first force recon at Camp Pendleton in 99 and 2000. Okay. Uh, I was working there, got to know the CO. Uh, did ride-alongs with them and their training. And I'll tell you, the, that tradition they built there was incredible. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Robert J. Coates was the OIC. Yeah. And and they did outstanding. And then from there, they built um, the uh, unit that went to Iraq and Det 1. Det 1, I know a lot of those guys. Um, oh, yeah. Amazing. Steve. And they, their tour of duty, they did good work. They my favorite story they came back with, they had um, developed a technique where they go into two separate enemy camps and open fire on each other. And then they pull back and watch the enemy kill each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That was really cool. I mean, that's, that's psyops at its best. True story. Pretty awesome. And, yeah. Then they had, then they went to Marsoc from there. And yeah. uh, there's so, plenty uh, of work out there for all the spec ops uh, troops, no matter Marsoc or SF or Rangers, you know, there's plenty. So I was in Fallujah as a recon Marine when Det 1 first started. So my old 18 Delta Navy Corman Sark ended up going over to Det 1. Uh, he's now a doctor up in Philly. Uh, one of the other gentlemen became my team chief, much like a team sergeant, uh, sure. over at, over at Marsoc. His name's Steve Kruger. Uh, Kruger was with me. I went to Afghanistan with him in 09 with Marsoc. So a lot of the debt one guys definitely paved the way for Marsoc. I showed up six months after Marsoc started in in, uh, in, in 06. So I got there that summer, um, right after it started. So very lucky to be a part of a brand new special forces unit. You know, that's pretty rare. Oh, yeah. 
people get a and you were there for Fallujah one yeah yeah Fallujah one that was one nasty nasty engagement yeah I was 24 man (laughs) yeah Yeah, it was uh I'm not I've said it before it was the gates of hell Fallujah Ramadi you know Stalingrad some of these big urban sits it's all the same shit you know it's just dark and quiet at night and you know, I wanted nothing to do with it, but of course we got it. So, yeah, and Ramadi, I mean, the task force dagger, what they did there under uh, Jocko, he's had some amazing stories out of there. Ramadi was no joke. Yeah, no. It, was, it was equally a shithole as Fallujah. But they cleaned it up. <laughs> yes, they did. Yes, 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 they did. Yes, we did. <laughs> it takes a little time. So, do you have when you were in uh, Vietnam? Did you ever have any forays into? urban combat or anything like that. I know a lot of the stuff that you guys did obviously was primarily in the, that heavy jungle environment. Do you guys ever find yourself in the cities? No, we never did that. Um, We would come into contact with villages sometimes. Right. And there was, there was once where we were doing an E and E and we came across the village, a small village and they had the village up on stakes and there's nobody there. We went through it, and uh, we were looking for a good LZ to get out, and uh, that was odd. And then uh, we were in enemy base camps a few times. Sometimes these are just going in, or on Thanksgiving Day, 1968, our mission was to find one of three missing NVA divisions. The 1st, the 3rd, and the 7th NVA divisions were literally MIA. The CIA lost contact. DIA didn't know where they were. And so on that mission, we literally walked into the base camp. The fires were still lit. And afterwards, our people determined that we, the recon guides had smiled on us. We walked into that camp when the one division had just left and a new one came in. And so the point and the tail elements came after us. Okay. And we did a tactical uh any back to the uh, to the LZ using claymores, Car 15s, our M79s, and we put the claymores with the five second fuses as we withdrew back, and that held them back long enough to get the air assets in to get us out. Wow! So no, nothing like what you all did in Fallujah or Ramadi, but these little villages, and again, walking to a base camp. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. So, oh, hey, yeah. I'd be interested, and I'm sure the people that listen would be, because we have, you know, people People are always super interested in in the gear and, and what people carried. Can you run us through, like, what was your a typical loadout for maybe if you had something specific to the team that, like, one person carried? Or what do you, like, when you were getting ready to head out, I know you guys had a lot of magazines and you guys had a lot of grenades. What What was, like, a typical loadout for you? I always carried 600 plus rounds for my car 15, <laughs> which was a modified M16. Yep. And then um, we had Thumper, the sawed off M79. Yep. And carried 10 to 12 rounds for it, 10 to 12 hand grenades. And I always carried a radio and, of course, an extra battery for that. And then one of the indigenous people would, uh, team members, would carry another battery. And um, so that was, that was, that was weight of consequence. And of course we yeah. carried smoke grenades, uh, different colors, violet, yellow, and some white smoke grenades. And then we always had a um, one canister of CS. 
so that if the uh, shit really hit the fan, you pop that CS. We had a we had a, a word that we would yell to each other. So if we knew we were going to do that, we pour our gas mask out, get it on in the middle of a firefight, then pop the gas, hopefully giving everybody time to put their mask on. But wow. those were the kind of things we trained to do. So our basic load, like I said, 60, 600 rounds for the car plus. And, of course, we only had the 20-round mags. So 18 uh -huh. rounds because of the springs. Yep. And and thumper, they really hated thumper because that was just a nasty weapon. But it really helped us because that gave us additional firepower. And then our Americans always carried uh, thumper on our team. In the beginning, I did three men, usually three Americans and three to five indigenous troops, all South Vietnamese, all fearless, just great warriors. And then later, I got more comfortable. We'd only have another American, and then more indige. Because they just knew the jungle better than we did. Right. And they were that good. And then our little people would carry a smaller load because they only weighed, you know, 115, 120 pounds soaking wet. Yeah. But we broke it down. And then before each mission, we'd do inspection for the gear and even have the guys jump up and down and make sure there's no noise on the gear, things like that. And, um, We'd always take a, usually we take a grenadier with us. So we'd have one M79 man with us. And then everybody else carried car 15s. And sometimes we would carry the uh, the uh, standard uh, 22 with a silencer on it, which was like left over from, from the OSS days from World War II. Yeah, hush puppy type. Yes. Yep. It was very effective to take out dogs or sometimes in the ambushes. Um you would try to wound somebody with that first. So what did you guys do for, because obviously, like you said, you had South Vietnamese, indige people. Um, did you guys, I'm sure you guys had a vetting process for that. Um, how, like, how did you go about sort of choosing these guys? Were they out yeah, of well, the, the classic example was when our team got wiped out, uh, um, the assistant team leader, we have a Vietnamese counterpart and they used to rotate. Well, luckily, the interpreter and the team leader, the Vietnamese team, his name was Sal, they rotated to miss that mission. And so we were able to rebuild the team through them. So um, my team leader, the American, was Spider Parks. He had been in country. He had been on the team. He had been promoted to another recon team as a team leader because he had experience well, when Idaho got wiped out, they pulled him back, made him the team leader. He brought on Don Wolken, and they brought in me. We knew each other from training group, and we played on a uh, softball team together at A Company. And then Sal and Hep went out and vetted all the South Vietnamese, and they, we hired three or four, and um, three of them were 15 years old. Wow. And they trained them up, and... So that was, the team got wiped out in May, and then through June, we rebuilt, went through all the training, everything from the repelling towers to uh, uh, doing uh, repelling from helicopters and immediate action drills. I mean, day after day, patrols, some night ambushes uh, in country just around our, our, our base just for local security purposes, and... Um, and we built them from there, and we trusted him. And uh, we just had implicit trust in Sal 
and they didn't fool around. I mean, there are a couple other guys that try to get on the team, and they told us don't hire him, so he wouldn't. Hmm. So we I, we were very lucky that way. I mean, they had other teams that had Montagnards, they had Nungs who were fearless fighters, and the Montagnards, the guys who used them, loved them, and um, they, you know, again, it was that building up that rapport with the local indigenous people. And getting that mutual respect, like in my case, I came into the team room the first time. Spider Parks introduced me to the team. And uh, Sal looked at Hep and told him in Vietnamese, he's too tall, his feet are too big, and he looks stupid. <laughs> so I, I had to earn my I had to earn my time and my respect from Sal. It took a while. That's but we great. had enough missions together. After the third or fourth mission, he gave me that nod, and uh, I was just very uh, – it was a, a day that I'll always remember and cherish because that was the point where he let me know that I earned his respect. Because <laughs> he and Hep had been fighting for two and a half, three years in the secret war already when I joined the team. Wow. That's that's a long time to be going through that. I mean – Yeah, can you imagine? Uh, no, not really. Well, that's, that's cool. cool. That, that probably didn't have to feel pretty good being being led into the wolf pack, you know, like a senior member, you know, just give you that nod. That's that's pretty cool. Absolutely. <laughs> so I, I I've got a I've got a request for for a, a, I remember when we when we were when we first met you in, in the midst of that video game and you were telling uh uh you kind of gave a quick overview of the story about you falling out of the helicopter. Uh <laughs> I I can you from the beginning of that tell us that whole because the to me still that's one of the most incredible stories I've ever heard and I I, I would you know I, I think you kind of hit the wave tops initially when you were talking about it then I'd love to hear some more of the details and how that all played out and what exactly went on with that. Well, yeah, um, this was November of '68, and um, like we said earlier in our podcast here we had a hard time finding LZs. So they came up with the concept of going out and finding a section of jungle where there are no trails and no LZs and drop a daisy cutter, a 2000 pound bomb, and then repel into the target. The theory being we would go in and get on the ground and then go do a, an area of reconnaissance. And that would give us a chance to get on the ground. Well, the first time we did it, the aircraft came in, dropped a 2,000-pounder, and so I'm standing on the step of the H-34 getting ready to repel, and the helicopter's heading down to the LZ, and then we start getting secondary explosions. I mean, many secondary explosions. And so to this day, Ho Chi Minh and the boys are trying to figure out how we dropped a daisy cutter in the middle of the jungle, and they had three or four dozen secondary explosions. We hit an enemy cache. Wow. We didn't know about. So we came back the next day. We tried it again. And so on this target, I was repelling down into the target area. Halfway down the rope, I can hear two people yelling across the open area where the bomb was. So I get on the ground, and um, I signaled that we've been compromised. And one of the uh, NVA opened fire, and the helicopter left with the rope. So I had on, I was detached. I was on the ground for a few minutes and these two are going back and forth. And then we had light contact 
the helicopter came back and they dropped the rope down. I hooked in my D ring because we had Swiss seats. Yep. Which was a six foot piece of rope. Yeah. Around your waist. You're familiar with those. Yep. And just a D ring. So then the rope would come down with a D ring, hook into it, and you're supposed to hook into the D ring on your shoulder. Well, I hooked in and they opened fire on the helicopter. And so the helicopter started pulling me up before I hooked in my D ring. And because they were shooting at the helicopter, I shot at them. I'm firing thumper. I changed magazines. And then instead of going up through the triple canopy, uh, the Vietnamese helicopter pilot was Captain Tuong. He went away. Oh, man. And I hadn't cleared the jungle yet. So I became a human pinball. The nickname Tilt became uh, painfully obvious as I ricocheted off some of the treetops on the way out. And I got bounced around, and I was holding on to the rope, and both of my arms were were bloody in the, in the, uh, the joint here. Yeah. So I finally cleared the jungle. We come out, and we came up, and I was holding on to my arms, but I hadn't hooked in the D-ring yet. And uh, at some point, we hit an air pocket, and the air pocket flipped me upside down. And my web gear and my backpack all came down and began to choke me out. So I was upside down, like a see the king bee, and I'm pointing to Henry King up there, get the, get the helicopter down. And um, so the Swiss seat went down to my knees, oh, man. and then it went down to my feet. So I'm at several thousand feet and my feet are spread like a new york city hooker hanging there <laughs> and i'm i'm getting ready to pass out and when right before i passed out i saw my life fast before my eyes and uh i saw the headlines in the local newspaper local boy dies in vietnam and i was like no i died in laos but don't tell my mother how i died this is too embarrassing i just you know i, I really fucked up here <laughs> And I, I passed out. Right before I passed out, I thought I fell elephant grass. And the fortunately, the, the King Bee pilot, Captain Tuong, had lowered and was getting close to Earth, Mother Earth, and when I passed out. So Henry King came out, picked me up, and threw me in the helicopter. And I woke up when my head was bouncing off the floor. But my Car 15 and my SOG knife, all my web gear, he left on the ground. Uh. So wow. my sog knife is somewhere in Laos today. Well, it's probably on someone's mantle. <laughs> yeah. We're just lost in the mud. So that's my uh, embarrassing moment in time there. And uh, again, just uh, the recon guide smiled on us. We were just very fortunate. Only by the grace of the Lord did we survive that one. Thanks for listening and check back next week for part two with John Stryker Meyer and the guys from Savage Actual. This has been Savage Actual. Jason and Patrick are two former special operations guys who interview interesting guests, who talk about video games, airsoft, and military subjects. Basically, they drink a lot of beer, talk about shooter games, and have fun. What's not to love? We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, make sure to like, rate, and review. And the fellas will be back soon. But in the meantime... Find them on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Savage Actual. Y'all be cool, and we'll see you next time.